Welcome to Women in Construction, proudly sponsored by Big Doug, the UK's leading storage experts. From garage shelving to industrial racking, office chairs, desks and packing, they've got it covered. Visit bigdoug.co.uk for mega deals and discounts. Today's guest speaker is Anne Narcliffe. Uh, Anne is um, an academic work, working at university, started off as an engineer, and she's going to tell us about her career, how um, they're successfully getting a huge amount of female intake into um, her university and their courses, and I guess how to we engineer to be more inclusive. That is the topic. If anybody wants to get involved, feel free, raise your hands, get up on stage, or otherwise you can add some questions um, or comments in the in the little chat box at the bottom left hand side. Uh, but Anne, welcome to you. Do you want to do you want to give us an intro and a, and a brief into yourself and your career? Hello, um, welcome. Um, I'm. Dr. Anne Nortcliffe. Um, I started my career off actually as a chemist um, and switched to engineering as a result of a summer placement at Nuclear Electric as one. It's now owned by the EDF um, and ended up working with the engineers and went, oh, actually, I prefer this. And so I went off and studied in control engineering, which took me to Spain and a research project on a sugar plant. Um, and I've worked in the chemical industry as well. And then I went back to university and did a PhD in process control effluent treatment and ended up at, eventually after working with various different universities research projects, I ended up at Sheffield Hallam University in engineering, being a very square peg in a round hole um, in the electronic electrical engineering department. So I took over the aerospace team and then realized I actually fit better over there in mechanical. And in 2017, I left Sheffield Hallam and joined Canterbury Christchurch University on a very new business venture. So Canterbury Christchurch University used to be a teaching um, training college and a nurse training college um, and branched out to be a university and developing new programmes in other fields. And they very much wanted to set up engineering. So I've had the opportunity with Professor Helen James, who's the deputy VC, to set up a whole new school of engineering technology and design from scratch um, and envisage that with a more EDI approach. But what I mean by EDI, it's not just EDI, it's in terms of student recruitment, females, um, black Asian students, low social economics, because we've got a downturn of white males, low social economics going to university. It's also re-engineering engineering. We have tackled everything from beginning to end, from understanding what needs to happen to be more inclusive on the pipeline from primary school, from nursery, through to higher education, what has to happen in the curriculum. And we can talk about that a bit more. Um, how I've recruited the staff, the staff as well in their actions in the curriculum and then how we are developing those students then from the employment market and employment, but also working with industry and supporting industry of what they need to understand that they need to do differently. It's more than EDI in engineering. It, it's everything that has to be looked at. Um, and working then in research activities with industry to come up with more inclusive engineering solutions. So we have bitten off everything. <laughs> it's, it's been an interesting challenge from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean that that is an awful lot, and I don't know. Can you tell us more about that? About um, yeah, about I guess what what you found and how you put this into action to produce the the um, success rates that you're already achieving. Well, I think the biggest lessons has been learned is going out to the literature. So I'm I'm a, I'm a true hardened academic now, rather than the industry. But a lot of work's been done in Delft in the Netherlands of understanding what reasons are females not entering into the employment market, um, leaving university and then not going into engineering or women not applying for certain jobs. So we know some of the research and works come out. It's really important how we encode our job adverts and make that more flexible and understand what is it women are looking for that's different to men, but also my own observations over the years working with Asian and black students, they also operate culturally experienced from the home and more team working, a bit more akin to female students and the Royal Academy engineers research has shown 40% of graduates of black Asian graduates with good honours degrees do not end up with careers in engineering. 
Um, unfortunately, there is blatant racism going out there with employers. Um, my own research on placements highlighted only 11% of our black and Asian students were getting placements when I was at Sheffield Hallam. And if they had an English sounding name, they got a job. If they didn't, they didn't. It was as simple as that. So you can see why I've been unpicking a lot. So for us to recruit the staff, it was about gender encoding, good practice interview, balanced on the interview, inviting the students to be part of the interview process as we got students through the door. I originally inherited computing, so I actually had some computing students to be able to support me in that exercise. Making people welcome, thinking about that interview process, what are we wanting those academics to be like um, in supporting the students. So we have exercises in there, which, you know, it's a full on day even for an academic role. So the combination of this approach has led to some very good quality staff coming through the door. So 40% of my staff are female, 60% of my academic staff are um, black and Asian. Um, so my academic sense staff is 40% female. Um, and amongst my technicians, I've got two females and six males. Um, so technicians, it's a bit harder. So we are making a difference in terms of staffing. In terms of student numbers, 21% of my students this year intake are females, which is above sector. It's normally around 70% in the sector. Um, we're uh, about... 40% black and Asian and also some sort of similar 50, up in 50% for low social economics. So we are very much primary, that inclusive school. But that learning we did with employment of trying to get staff, we applied to advertising the courses. So gender neutral language, but actually more feminized. We know from the research, men will apply regardless. If you feminize it, more likely the females will apply. I spent all my time looking over the photographs of our imagery, our wording, that it's, you know, e inclusive. So we've got balance of females, black, Asian, white males in those photographs. Um, the same with the staffing in that. So we're reflecting that diversity of the team in that environment. Um, and it does make a difference because the ChemEng course, the very first year I created all the copy and feminised it, we had... 10 female students through the door and two males. Um, the following year, the course leader, who's male, rewrote the copy on to me and mascul and really strongly masculinized it. And we had no female applicants through the door. So it does make a difference. Words, mirror image, we know that from the research, but also we're seeing that makes a difference. 100%. Wow. Sorry, Michaela. No, no, go on. Um, I was just a, a couple of points. Um, first of all, um, absolutely incredible um, what you're doing. You're doing what we'd love every institution and workplace to to be doing. And what's really sad is when you said about um, the placements and you know the the name, the way it sounded, and whether they got a placement or not, dependent upon that research. What's really sad is that I was I wasn't surprised because I'm like. People think it's not happening anymore, but it is. And, you know, it takes for someone to you to say that actually you've noticed it and it's happening, where then another few people open their eyes to it. And I think until you stop banging the drum and banging on about it, it's not going to change. And I think we absolutely need this. I was wondering if you could share, you mentioned um, you did some research into the reasons why um, you weren't getting female applicants. And I know you've expanded into talking about changing your adverts, but was there any other reasons why you found that women weren't necessarily taking up roles um, in engineering post-graduating or um, even coming onto courses and placements? Could you share with us maybe some of the things that you found within that research? Yeah, so, so actually I went out and talked to people, so I was very fortunate to access graduates from some of the Russell Group universities they were highlighting when they were going round recruitment fairs um talking to you know and this concludes big construction firms as well um the people that were going to these um recruitment fairs you milk rounds of the old day um were often men they were talking about football um yes the 
Um, there are a proportion of women who, you know, are interested in football, but not an awful lot. It's, it's not as great. Um, when they would go and approach to the desk about making inquiries about the engineering opportunities, they felt less welcomed um, talking to these male colleagues um, about the opportunities in there. They weren't thinking about the environment they were going to. They would then go off and talk to the likes of Price and Cooper, your finance and accountancy firms, whose the desks would be managed by women who had gone into, you know, graduated or become graduate accountants, and they basically did sell the company of, oh, if you join us, this is how we'll support you to get your accountancy exams. This is a strategy we do. Um, you know, this is how it period over the time. If you need to have a career break, you can have it, you know, we can accommodate that. And they laid out a 10-year career plan working around, you know, the opportunities for what females want to do. And now, of course, with COVID and working from home, there are even banks have worked out they don't need the staff through the door. They're presenting these very constructive career plans that are very flexible, work around everything that maybe female colleagues are trying to consider and juggle through but I also know from my own experience now with male colleagues who want to be part of their family lives you know that is going to become an attractive element as well so that was one of the problems of one of why they weren't going then applying to those companies there's the other argument they were highlighting or experience they highlighted They'd had such, even though they were walking out with first and two one degrees, they had had an interesting and challenging educational experience at university where they'd experienced tutors being misogynistic, um, their feral fellow males on the course, very testosterone driven, excluding them from activities. Um, I've witnessed uh, one of my previous employers, a male colleague refuse point blank to answer female questions. Um, girls being the only girl on the course and being made to feel incredibly isolated at my previous employer. We um, female staff used to have a female student come and have lunch with us because they were soul destroyed during the day because of their male peers on the course. Um, so there's that, none of that camaraderie. And Bodie's work from America, who's done a huge amount of work in Europe and in England, of interviewing students and group projects, works activity, found that the girls were incredibly bright, excellent engineers. They were being isolated in group work to do the managerial role and the paperwork and typing up at the minutes. And writing up the documentation and not being allowed to do any of the technical elements so they were graduating with good degrees but feeling less confident in their technical competency um, than their male peers because they'd been isolated out and the argument of their male peers was saying oh but they're really good at project management and good at leadership yes and they were you know demonstrating that but they weren't having the opportunity to apply technical skills so Kate Bodie's work she came up with a framework which we have in our courses inform the academics particularly all of them to keep you aware that they need to rotate roles like the leadership management and the project management side and the documentation and everybody should be getting on doing technical elements so everybody when they graduate feels confident in their technical skills as well as their employability skills i just find it absolutely incredible that in this day and age you're still having to remind people within a framework that Actually, when people are on this course, regardless of who they are, that they all get a turn at everything. <laughs> Not like, you know, gender specific to where we think their strength should lie. Let them flourish and have a go at everything. Um, and then we can decide what they're good at. Um, is it frustrating, Anne, doing what you do? I can, I can only imagine how rewarding it is. Um, I, I think it's incredible what you do. And I, I can only imagine for me that, you know, the, the pride I would feel but is it frustrating when you come across these issues? Um, yes, because it doesn't change in some respects year from year um, in terms of some type, that education, that level of thinking and the impact of people's actions on each other. Um, some of that is innocence, it's teenage years. You remember you're dealing with 18, 19 year olds and male hormones don't sort of settle down into 2022. I'm sorry, but that, that 
that's the reality and you know the physiology and so that is some of that challenge that comes through and it's our job to educate them um, some of the real challenge now coming through is really sad in that banter um, and we've, we've recently dealt with this and so we deal deal with it you know we create an environment where females feel absolutely confident to come and talk to us and complain and through our academic conduct we are addressing it but unfortunately with the banter issue um, on their phones there's no parent there's no teacher seeing that and students are learning words and phrases um, which they they say is banter against each other would which would absolutely get them fired in the commercial world or even the public sector in the role. Um, and we're picking that up now because the students are prepared to challenge it um, and deal with it. And so that voice is going back. But that's not going to change because you've got a new generation, every new set of students every year. And unfortunately, these habits are being learned, you know, at any age from 12 upwards, but also in the home sort of thing. So we just keep changing yeah. it. <laughs> I, and we've, we've touched on this before about the, the banter thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop um, when they come out of further education. Um, we see a lot of it on um, building sites, boots on the ground, and it's like it's just banter, it's just banter. And you don't understand the damage that can do to someone who isn't having a good time at home and you don't know what they're dealing with when they're not in work. And it's then not a safe space for them. And... Um, I think you've mentioned it before, Michaela, that as an industry, we have the highest suicide rate in men. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The construction industry is suicide and divorce and mental health in general as well. Um, but I, I think it's because the banter is, is, is not very funny most of the time. And, no, it's, uh, and it's, 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 not, it's not, is it? It's, to be in. Yeah. it's not banter, it's bullying. And that's where we've, you know, we've talked about before that, you know, uh, toolbox talks need to include reminding people that banter is only banter if it's funny and if someone isn't finding it funny anymore. Um, I've had an issue in my own company recently. Um, we employ two Asian engineers um, and it's come back to me through somebody through somebody else that one of the engineers was really struggling to deal with the banter that people were were giving him as, as jokes about not drinking and this and all of it kind of aimed towards his race and them thinking it's funny and I'm like it's really not and it's almost like re-educating grown men even at this age in their life so I think catching it the age that you are doing on is it can, it can only be a, a very very good thing and a positive thing for them to to learn and be aware of um that yeah it's not banter it's bullying type thing and one of the things we're picking up with that is with that EDI sort of mindset is it's not only EDI for engineers. If you don't get that inclusive understanding, you will engineer solutions that will engineer people out in terms of what they get used. So there was before COVID a commercial product out there. So this affects the construction industry, um, soap dispenser that would only dispense soap to white skin. And this is the consequences when you have teams designing and developing this technology that are all white. You design to your mirror image and you're not thinking outside that and the wider cultural, ethnicity, gender considerations. The car is a classic example. It's designed for a male spatial awareness because the distance between our eyes and ears is different from female. The space between our interplurary um, distance between our nose is smaller as well so that makes our spatial awareness completely different to a male head but also even your foot size if you have a shoe size less than a six so five and a half your foot is suspended in the air when you use the gas pedal that is true i'm a size five these are um, all very interesting facts Anne, that I knew nothing about. I knew about the seatbelt scenario that men are much safer and that actually manufacturers have the ability to make it safer for, for women as well, but for some reason are failing to do so. And surprisingly, there's nothing in legislation to regulate that and to ensure that women and children are just as safe as, as what men are. Um, but I guess it is this thing when you're designing in, a, in an echo chamber, these problems don't come up. I'm astounded with the, how could it only dispense to white skin? Like, what was the problem there? Because um, it's got a light sensor, so it's doing the Doppler effect of reflecting back off the skin tone. 
um, to issue, so it's seeing something that's underneath there, which is a hand, so it issues soap. Um, so if a dark hand went under, it wasn't, the light level of light being reflected back is not sufficient for it to trigger to issue soap. Oh my God, that is nuts. I'm going to go over to Carol Ann to see if she's got some input or she'll ask some questions because um, I don't think she can speak for the full hour. So Carol, do you want to add something or ask Anne some questions? Hi, hi everyone. Uh, thanks, Michaela and Anne. Wow, what a what an insight. And um, it's it's really interesting that, you know, this is, is you know, a massive problem still. So, um, what are some of the, the challenges that you are facing as you as you're going about making some of these changes? What are some of the things day to day you're hearing from employers as such? So, um, I suppose it's for us to provide that challenge. So, when we do go into the employment environment, some of the things we do ask and look around is where are the toilets for the females if they're back in the admin box that's not really helpful if you've got them working down towards the shop floor that sort of exercise area and um, ppe is a classic one and we know the construction industry has been trying to address that for quite some number of years and i know that was jan peter's campaign particularly when we were doing crossrail about fitting ppe um, because it's dangerous it's, it's <laughs> ill-fitting ppe will end result in harm um, so we have a duty of care to make sure the PPE is fitting for female form as well as it is for our male colleagues. Um, also it's that prism of seeing it and believing it so the classic example in when, when I was working in previous university is when we had group working together it was seeing how the boys cluster and exclude the females and that can go on in the work environment. And it, it, it's about men, uh, everybody becoming allies and seeing it. Unless it's on your peripheral vision and you're educated to see it, you won't see it. So again, it's about that education. I mean, I think the classic one was I went to an engineering professor council meeting. Oh, this is going back about four years ago. And this company who actually does supply in the construction industry was really, really, really proud that they'd done this huge campaign of getting some infant female apprentices and put this video together. And there were three other profs, female profs and me sat on this table. And we started counting the number of female faces that appeared in the video versus the number of men. And the whole video, you wouldn't know, by the time it was finished, it was all about getting female apprentices into engineering because a female appeared once the rest was all males on camera talking and male apprentices and male bosses etc and showing around the factory so the whole proportional video was about trying to get females into engineering yet there was nothing that provided that mirror image so, and i had to speak to the ceo afterwards and said that and he just got very angry and said but we are we are doing it and he just couldn't get the impact of his own actions so that's so interesting. And another question, do you see that, um, just on the follow-up to that, is the age of the, the person within the organisation that you're trying to um, instil change, is it different between, you know, the ages? I know that from a construction perspective, you've got some, you know, younger, you know, early 30s that are coming into the construction sector, you know, they're more aware of what what you know what a working environment should or should not and i know some of them are are still on the the side of the bantering compared to the older generation that's saying well we don't see this as a problem so what what's what's your view on that who is the who are the easy um cadence to to educate as part of this process experience in actual fact the old the people who want to engage and suddenly realize this is impacting our bottom line and have read round are more open so in actual fact a lot of white males close 45 in their 50s have suddenly started to see it from a different perspective particularly if they've got daughters or even if they're old enough and they've got granddaughters they start seeing it through their own children's and daughter's eyes, and that may be because the conversations are happening far more at home. Um, 
And it does vary with the younger male. It does depend, again, on their background and what they've been exposed to. Um, because some of the, the harder challenges I've had have actually been students through the door of them understanding it and trying to develop them to become allies and educate them. And they've really challenged the research. Where's the paper? Where is it showing this? Um, like the classic example, the racism of the town planning of New York, which was happened in the 1950s, and we had to provide all the literature for supporting that. He couldn't believe, this where we had a particular student, who couldn't believe somebody would do that, or that it would carry on post um, the hurricane in New Orleans and the results of what happened then with the town planning afterwards. Um, because they've grown up in a home environment where they were told, you know, almost white supremacy. Um, so it's challenging what they've learned. So that can be quite hard of learning at that young age that your parents have been telling you less truthful stories. I can't imagine the difficulty with that. And I suppose as well, I find this same conversation in, in a different context difficult where, you know, you talk to, to men about, oh, women feel unsafe or we feel uncomfortable or we feel like this around men because of that. Men who know they're normal and are not a dangerous women can't seem to comprehend another man would be like that and why we should be scared. And I think it's Sorry, my phone started ringing. I think it's the same when you try and re-educate somebody who's been taught something at a young age and known that all of their life. And they think, well, why would somebody do that? Like, that doesn't seem right. Like, surely not. And it's almost like they can't comprehend why someone would have those views. And changing that is probably quite unsettling for them as well to hear that, actually, yeah, this still does happen. And it's shocking, isn't it? And it, it, I mean, it is, and I, I think, I mean, we, I have two daughters, and, and this, this is a very recent incident. So the day after I won the Construction and Engineering Award, um, my husband and I had took the day off, and we went to the National Gallery. Now I go up to the National Gallery quite regularly on my own. It's, I consider it a safe space. I love the National Gallery. I love the exhibitions there, but I'd gone with my husband. He'd gone off to the loop and come back with a security guy because he got himself lost. So he was marching ahead of me and was partially conscious aware, but until not until much later, when I was actually accosted by somebody who was visiting National Gallery and started chatting me up and being very much in my space and making me very, very uncomfortable and me trying to politely asking them to leave me alone. And then my husband became aware and then intervened. Um, and we ended up with security intervening and the person being left. I'm over 50, so I'm still a bit shocked this happened <laughs> in this day and age. But again, I think it even shocked my husband that it happened in a public space at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was sort of, and, and it was sort of, you know, and it sort of dawned on me, this, this is every day for us, whether we like it or not. I mean, fortunately, it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, for my girls, yes. Yeah, and that's the education piece, isn't it, of um, trying to explain to people that don't think that way themselves, that other people still think that way, and we have to be aware of it. You know, racism still happens whether you are aware of it or not. You know, not being inclusive still happens whether you're not aware of it or not you know, conscious and unconscious bias happens. And in order for us to move the needle and for everybody to get where you are now and to get the, you know, the employers that you're working with to open up as an industry in the way that you are, they have to accept that these things are still happening and it's still a thing and um, a lot needs to change. And I think it is the majority and not the minority that have to change that way of thinking and just be a little bit more open-minded and if someone tells you something and that it's happening don't be so shocked like take it on board and ask what you can do to help and support and I think that's the way to move it forward isn't it 
Yeah, I think it's that support. And I think very much the piece we're working on now in our school is that allies. We've, you know, done all the development work, but we realise the biggest piece we need to be doing is that allyship now. Um, so everybody's on the same page and moving forward on that. Um, and we're not perfect. We, you know, everybody's work in progress. And as long as you admit that, you know that you can move forward on things. Yes, I agree. It brings me nicely on to my next question, Anne. Why, why do you think it's so important to be inclusive in engineering and in construction? For what is the, the benefits and why is it important just for general society? Well, ethically and morally. Um, we can't we can't contact, carry on as we're doing being very sedgwayed siloed approach um but also in terms of the construction and where we're moving to um and being an inclusive society we need homes that are fit for all of society so we know from the research in america and uh, particularly in the netherlands that the more inclusive your team is the more diverse your team is the better solutions you will produce um, products, site, ex everything, which actually affects your bottom line. You make more profit. So for businesses, it makes sense to engage in this because in the longer term, it makes your business more financially viable. But in terms, you know, of making domestic homes, making them more EDI, you know, you are increasing your customer base um, of who could be, you know, investing in purchasing their homes, but also the same for the work environments. Um, you know, employers employ a variety of employees, so making that building work for everybody who's going to work in that space. And an employer is more likely to take that lease or take that building. I've never forgotten walking into a stairwell at one of my previous employers to discover a flamidamide victim, you know, in her wheelchair, sat in the stairwell and couldn't go anywhere because facilities had fitted the electronic door opening beyond her height. It was actually at adult height light switch. And I asked, how long have you been in the stairwell? And she said, 10 minutes. I says, I'll let you out, but trust me, I will go back to facilities and I will get that changed. And we had a whole conversation with facilities. And I says, did you, at any point, did you go around in a wheelchair to see at what height you could reach? putting in, designing, putting these electronic switches. And they went, um, no, right, go away and do. Because um, that was after the Equality Act had come out in 2010. And they did, they did go and address that. Do you know what's incredible about that though, Anne? There's a whole piece on Part L, which is all about wiring regs, etc., which came out in like, I don't know, 97, like years and years ago which states the height of switches to be accessible to children and people in wheelchairs. Like it's a really standard bit of information that they're supposed to be aware of. Um, and not even if you, you know, not even if you're putting a door in for that reason, but just to be aware of the part of regulations. So that blows my mind that people still just crack on and do their own thing and stand up and fit it where their arms comfortably fit and not think about any user after that like it blows my mind and it's also you know the snagging afterwards and the qs going around and not spotting it so it's not just the fitter it's everybody else involved it's absolutely crazy um am i all right to ask another question michaela sorry yeah yeah all right um from a placement point of view, um, I know you said you did your studies um, previous to this kicking off and, you know, it didn't sound great from what you explained earlier. What is the response looking like now and, and are you getting good feedback post-placement and surprised people, I suppose, of saying, actually, you know, before this, we probably wouldn't have had as many numbers from um, the minority groups and now we have we are finding that the placements suit us better or what is that looking like at the moment so at the moment for our institution we're still on a journey of developing that um, so 
for, for me and recognizing being more inclusive, I've created placement module of anything goes. So we're working now with businesses to create those opportunities. So students can do it day release um, during their second year while they're doing their other modules because they're only doing three days a week. Um, or they can do it summer placement. At my previous institution, what we were doing to try and address this, we had to be advocates. So if we were noticing students were being rejected on their CV, we were contacting businesses and talking that student up and saying, look, just, just do a telephone interview, have a conversation with them. And then they would have a conversation and, go, and they'd phone back saying, they're wonderful, we're having them through the door, they're going to come and work for us. I said, you know, but you could have done that without us nudging you from the CV. Um, so that's what we were having to do. We were having to be the advocates for the students and creating those opportunities for them. And that, you know, has opened doors. And to be fair, we've done that recently with um, some of our ChemEng. We've just had a very small cohort, our very first cohort ChemEng graduate this summer. And we we have been those advocates for them. And I've just got a black African Caribbean students in a very large American firm um, for some work with the opportunity of that getting it's a small um, internship project at the moment, but it's potential to grow into much bigger. Um, and we were the biggest advocate for her to get her through the door. Um, That's we... phenomenal. It's, it's amazing that you're doing that, but the dream is to not have to do that, isn't no. it? Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of big corporates are beginning to sort of really look at what their recruitment processes are like. Um, and they are very much designed in the 1950s. So some of the assessment exercises they do are very much based on white males um, and came out of America. And it's interestingly, Amazon decided to develop it further electronically with an AI. <clears throat> and as a result, the AI learning from previous years, numerous years, um, the result was they were only interviewing white males. So they did ditch the AI because it became so blatantly obvious. But then it made them sort of realise what is our recruitment process. And I think some large corporates really do need to go back and look at their methodology of how they recruit graduates because they are based very much round based in the 1950s approach. Um, I never questioned what that's leading to. Yeah, thanks, Annie. And do you know, can, can I ask you, just kind of bouncing back to the initial question um, around ED&I, for those who are listening, and um, obviously we understand ethically and morally, and you explain about the bottom line profits, but, but why does that happen? Why, when you have a diverse team, do you produce better results? What takes place with a, with a diverse team? So it means, it does go back to that mirror image. So particularly with product development and engineering, your test, your initial test bed is your own team. The more diverse your team is, the more you're going to question and think that through of who's using it. It's less of that mirror image. It's looking at it from a wider picture angle and doing what if scenario. Um, so seeing that greater perception of what, you know, where's this got to be fitted? I think the classic example would be now, I'm, I'm conscious that I knew the team, because um, I was a student there, who developed originally the instrument who measured our white blood cells, cells, you know, our oxygen levels in our fingers that we're all used to. It's only during COVID that we've questioned and realised that's calibrated on white skin, which is why, unfortunately, black and Asian people were dying from COVID because the readings were saying they were getting the oxygen levels when they weren't. So again, the more diverse oh the teams no, I hadn't actually heard that. That is, yeah. um, that's crazy. So, so are all these being changed now? Yes. Yes, because we saw that very early on in COVID, a lot more Asian and black people were dying from COVID. At first it was perceived as so it's a genetic predisposition. And then questions were begun to really ask, what is going on? And that's when they realised the oxygen levels measuring was incorrect. Oh my God. And can I ask as well, as a slightly separate point. Um, why did you choose to get into academia um, over 
engineering and do you feel like you have more of an influence in your position now than you would have had previously? I mean, it came about purely by accident. I said I would never have an academic career. My father was an academic and I'd grown up in academia and, and some of the challenges associated with an academic career. It was because I was working in industry at the time with a partnership project with um, Huddersfield University at the time and they unfortunately had a member of staff who went off sick, long-term sick. They had a module for their apprentices um, who worked for um, David Brown at the time and they needed somebody to come in to teach robotics and um, control engineering and automation, which is my area. Um, and I've got so much holiday to use up. <clears throat> I went into Huddersfield, did some sessional teaching for them for 16 weeks and loved every minute of it. I came home so high and happy from you know, all the work and prep, doing the teaching and setting the assignments and doing the practical work with students. Um, and really, really enjoyed it. And my husband turned around and he says, you are far happier doing that than what you are doing in industry. Which is why I went back to university and did a PhD and carried on doing sessional teaching and how I ended up with an academic career. Um, so it's more about what fitted and worked for me and developing those student learning and making a difference. I mean, what's so great teaching apprentices, you teach them something and they go, oh, that solved that problem at work today. Thank you. And off they go and they come back. There's all the little light bulbs go on in the classroom. It's great. It takes a bit longer with the full-time students. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Something that you thought you'd never want to do, you've actually transpires you absolutely love doing it. And I wonder, what was your lived experience as a female engineer? Um, like, what year was you training, and and what did those classes look like then? So my MSc, well, my chemistry degree were about forty percent female, six percent male. Um, in actual fact, the predominant number of people in that year group were actually more public schools than, than state school, um, which is an interesting observation. Um, and I probably would say about 10, 15% of students were um, ethnic diverse, sort of black Muslim students as well. So I was chemistry was a bit more diverse. When I went to do my MSc, I was the only female. Um, majority of the students were overseas. There were three other home students from the UK and we did one module in electronic electrical engineering with the undergraduates and at that time Bradford University had a massive contract with Taiwan and I walked into this lecture theatre and there was 150 students in the room probably about 130 they were from Taiwan and I was the only female wow well, the only one and what, what year was that Anne? That was 91 to 92. Um, but when I went to Spain to do my research projects in the automatic control and systems engineering departments in University by Adelaide, um, and I did modules there, 50% female. 50% the academic staff was female. Do you think that's why it was 50% female? Because there was so many staff that was female? Or, or how did they get it right so early on? And I think that is to do with more the fallout of Spain. So when I was there in 92, you've got to remember it's still only 14 years, 16 years after Franco. So from the mid-1930s until the late 70s, Spain had been isolated from the rest of um, Europe. Though there had been the holidays down on the Costa del Sol, um, you had had a fascist regime in there and very much operated in isolation from the rest of Europe. Um, and we know that is also true with Eastern European states, um, isolation from the Western world and where they promoted equality. And I would say Spain there is quite misogynistic, but in terms of education, it was very equally promoted. Um, but also engineering means a different word in Spanish. It means genius, uh, ingenious and inventor, not a dirty engineer mucking under a car engine. Yeah, I think that is the thing. It's definitely society's perception of industries, I mean, especially construction, but the same with engineering. They just presume it to be this, this dirty, 
job that only the uneducated people in society end up going into which the greater play is to try and change that but it's um it's really challenging when um even the cartoons like Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol and these cartoons are still kind of heavily gendering careers to the smallest of children it is and that's some of the work we're trying to change so it's about that pipeline so we do go in i mean i do, i go in with robotics i i have held um foundation stage students so this is preschool students who are you know kids who are two to three spellbound for nearly half an hour three quarters an hour because of the robot the toy robotics i bring in and teach them very basic concepts about instrumentation and control with relations to their body and the, the nursery school teachers gone we've never gotten to sit still for that long to do that kind of activity um so you know it has to start that young going in primary school secondary school and the research is showing some of some of the work my institution's been doing um with low social economic schools meaningful stem activities done in school whether through universities and outreach and stem ambassadors going in meaningful that means links into the national curriculum at every key stage of the curriculum national curriculum from preschool to 18 leads to people choosing a stem career yeah that's so interesting and i think it's just like so, so interesting in general anyway i know i would have really loved anything like that when when i was going through school but it just wasn't it wasn't a thing it's not spoken about construction engineering these just aren't things that were were ever taught or that's ever even spoken about it's just the, the kind of typical careers that are thrown down your throat all through childhood and there's just so much of the world that you're completely unaware of but why is that like and how can schools um, and businesses how can people change their approach to attract more diversity well one of the things we are trying to do so we're trying to work with our education department and reimagine um with the primary education so you've got to bear in mind your average primary school teacher though it's required to have english and math gcse and they do have to pass science gcse but they may have done single science GCSE, which is more likely to be biology. And then they've gone into the sixth form, done various subjects, but unlikely to have carried on with maths or science at A-level and then come in to do primary school education. So by the time they graduate, the last time they did any science was back at GCSE. And though the primary education course is supposed to have a whole module on science, we are readdressing that at our institution and we are going to be putting in a lot more of that and potential modules that could work in collaboration with our engineering students so they get that learning and understanding of all the different sort of you know what does this lead to what's the impact of this you know and then sort of what roles and sort of careers sort of can lead out of that um i remember primary school teachers then you know are limited about who they're exposed to in terms of the working environment to so have that knowledge to be able to share that kids and it's the same at secondary level often the secondary teacher is somebody who's gone through school done a degree then a dinner pg set or more often than not now done teach first which means they go from their degree straight into a school and been trained to do a teacher so there's a whole educational program that has to be done with teachers fortunately for us is this what's known as the gatsby standards which is an absolute requirement now in schools that they have to teach at secondary to expose students to more curriculum development. Now, some councils, Kent County Council, do subcontract that out um, to career service to bring in, um, but you have got massive STEM ambassadors out there. So we've got one of the largest Southeast STEM ambassadors hubs, um, which does bring in people from industry. And the construction industry you have a wonderful requirement under a DCO. You are required in order to land a DCO now. It's an educational skills package. Now, a lot of that people think about that as apprenticeships, and then you're thinking about your apprenticeships with your existing staff instead of thinking the pipeline through. And some of that is because construction are short contracts. So by the time you've done the investments in the apprenticeships, that person graduating from the apprenticeship 
it's, it's, you've moved on from that project. So maybe it's most DCOs should be working with education and skills back with the local universities or colleges who have got the package, who are going into schools and developing that STEM education. It's what we do in the southeast, and we're certainly looking for funding that way because we no longer can get government funding for that development, that STEM education. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're always pretty stable careers and industries as well. You know, we say with construction, there's people are always going to want houses, that we're always going to need infrastructure. There's there's kind of guaranteed to always have a job in these industries as well. But again, it's just something that's that's not spoken about and children just don't know what they don't know. So without the teachers teaching them, I find it really interesting what you said about teachers and how they get into it as well and how perhaps quite simple it is. Um, my eldest son, well, both my children, they, they go to private school and the curriculum there is amazing. And the teachers, I'm going to say 90% of them uh, was all doing what they teach before they've gone into teaching so my son plays rugby it's an extra rugby player who teaches him um the the musicians was once in a band you know everybody has got experience of, of those um of, of their own um what they're called lessons or whatever industry themselves before then going into teach but in general i think in just normal um in normal mainstream schools it is just you do a degree in something and then you can literally teach in something else yeah, and what's even more frightening is when you get to FE, um, the qualifications of the people who are teaching those students. The minimum qualification required to teach T-levels, that's level three, so that's post-GCSE equivalent to A-level, or teaching BTEC, is they only have to have a BTEC or a T-level themselves. That is mad, isn't it? it? It is mad. And you can, I mean, you obviously see the difference between um, private school educated children and public. And that's not saying, you know, everybody's going to do great, but they have far better opportunities, far better chance. Just the facilities in general that are at, I went to a normal school and just his facilities are absolutely next level. You do wonder why the government don't just put more into education because it will solve so many problems even down to mental health and self-awareness being able to be taught these in school conflict resolution and children understanding all of this then by the time they get to go into society they're going to be much more rounded individuals than what they have now with the with this sloppy education at best in in some areas you know we're up north the, the school systems up here are and not very good hence my children going to a private school um but you just think that that is how you solve the problems or that that's my opinion you solve the problems by teaching young people how to become good people yeah and the associated challenges with that is particularly like for science education that's needed very much that underpins the construction and engineering and um, skill and also skills i mean at the moment the construction industry is, you know, needs plumbers, needs fitters, it needs, you know, people who can weld, um, debt painters, decorators, all actually very good lucrative careers, you know, through self-employed, running your own small businesses. Um, very much at the moment there is that drive to university, and there's me working in university, um, but then that neglects those other career opportunities and skills opportunities. Um, I've then been able to go to FE to get that experience and that the learning appropriately. Um, the other and the STEM side of that, if we want them to go out to engineering, civil engineering, construction engineering, quantitative or needing degrees, um, this is this is the worrying part now. This year's intake nationally, Teach First and PG Cert posts for teaching maths, physics, and computer science. And bear in mind, we are increasing digitalization of construction and engineering. So we, digital literacy is a big issue. So computer science is really important that needs to be coming through. All of those courses and the Teach First on those subject areas are only a third fall this year. Really? Yeah, that is worrying. And that's nationally. Why is it so poor though? What, what is... Where is this going wrong? Well, 
We're nearly at 100% employment in this country. So graduates in maths, physics, and, and particularly computing. I mean, you know, what a computing professional now can earn commercially. Um, I know going into teaching, which is quite a challenging job. Um, it's certainly not nine to five. It's more likely nine to nine. Um, yes, you get your vacations, but you're doing prep work there. Um, you're having to deal with, you know, all the hormonal challenges and, you know, society prevents safeguarding Ofsted. Ofsted puts off an awful lot of people. Um, paperwork administration side as well as doing teaching. Um, the commercial world starts looking more attractive than an education career. Yeah, it's just, it's tragic, isn't it? And it's, how how can you change all of this? And I, and I think just the pools of people, like you said before, you know, your, your engineers and QSs, et cetera, these all need degrees, but then your, your skills um, or your, your trades people, plumbers, electricians, um, they, they all seem to be pulled from this, uh, when you're failing at all your other subjects, then getting to being a, a plumber or a painter and decorator. And if you're doing very well, then that's when you can be a QS. But what isn't ever really highlighted is the fact that you can start off as a labourer and mm -hmm. definitely work your way up while still getting paid as well within the construction industry, which is um, perhaps a more old school way of doing it, but still a very popular way of people being successful in construction. But just, I think people not understanding career paths, career opportunities, the potentials. If you're in this industry, it's a wide industry um, and there's lots of different paths to success. But again, it seems to be really unspoken. And that, and that the only way that will change is, as I say, construction industry, either using their DCO and their skills education package that work then with the region of going back into that school and part of that educational package and the Gatsby standards. And, you know, being STEM ambassadors going in and developing that knowledge. Um, and part of that is educating the teachers as well as the students in there so that we always do that. So if when we do the STEM outreach, I'm not having the teacher walking out the room. I'm going, you're going to learn this as well because it's important for you to learn. Um, I mean, one of the classics I like to use is the washing machine and how much that has changed social justice. Um, it meant girls could have an education because they used to do the washing on a Monday and a Tuesday, which meant they didn't go to school. It's just, yeah, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. And you're definitely right. The teachers do need educating just because, again, they don't know what they don't know. And um, if they don't know anything about it, how can they possibly bring it into any kind of normal lessons as well? I'll teach anybody about it. Um, but, Anne, do you know what? I've absolutely loved this chat today. You're um, obviously incredibly intelligent and really know your stuff. And, and I know, um, I'm sure you know, we, I have the magazine Designer Build UK. I would love to... Um, to give one of our journalists your details and perhaps do a follow-up article from this as well and talk a bit about your research your findings and how successful um you are over there as well at your university with your intake and your staff levels uh, etc and perhaps give some of our readers some of those um hints and tips that you've shared with us today i'd be more than happy to fabulous well and again thanks so much um for everybody who's listening on the podcast this um this this room this podcast is once again sponsored by big dog who are the shelving and wreckage specialist oh, i can't say it shelving and wrecking specialists um and they have everything for your business they've got over six thousand products so um please do check them out they've been sponsoring us for 18 months and uh, they really do believe um in supporting women in construction so show them some love back and um and all of Anne's details we will be adding um onto the podcast as well so if you scroll through the description you'll be able to uh, find it more about Anne and where you'll be able to reach her should you um, want to I presume that's all right Anne if anybody yeah. wants to get in touch that's more than welcome um I'm very easy to find unfortunately well advantageously and unfortunately my name there's only one Anne Norcliffe in the whole world online is it yes Oh, that's a, do you know what? And I share my name, Michaela Wayne, with a, an Australian supermodel. So it's an absolute killer. I think people go to her first and be like, oh, she's beautiful. And then realise actually I'm a ginger northerner. <laughs> Not quite the same, in fact. <laughs>
<laughs> so you look at right that's brilliant thank you very oh, much thanks everybody for listening and thanks everybody um, who joined in today as well thanks sam Welcome to Women in Construction, proudly sponsored by Big Doug, the UK's leading storage experts. From garage shelving to industrial racking, office chairs, desks and packing, they've got it covered. Visit bigdoug.co.uk for mega deals and discounts.